0: What a marvelous passage, amen? Mm. I'm sure many of you are very, very familiar with this passage, Philippians chapter 2. Hmm. As you can tell, we're back in Philippians this morning. Took a break last week as we observed Good Friday and Easter. But It's good to be back in chapter 1. Of course, we've, we've covered uh, joy and suffering. We've talked about Christ-centered life Now we enter into chapter 2, and I'm here to tell you that Paul does not lighten up. He goes deeper. And I just have a question I want to start off this morning. How do we get to a place of unity? How do we get to a place of unity? Believe it or not, it's over 20 years since 9-11, if you can believe that. And I remember just shortly after the the events that happened on that day, this phrase was going everywhere in America, united we stand. Remember that phrase? United we stand, a, a call for America to stand united. And it's a great call. In fact, it's even biblical, right? We're supposed to be united, but how do we get there? How do we do that? It's great sentiment to say, let's be united, but what do we do to get there? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's what Paul touches on. And what he does in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he's done this before. He's going to do it again. He's going to give us a command to follow and then an example to emulate. A command to follow, then an example to emulate. You see in your notes, there are two points this morning. Don't be deceived in thinking that means it's going to be a short sermon. <clears throat> in fact... Usually, I type up around five to six pages on a Word document for a sermon. I got done with my first point, and I had four and a half pages. Now, I did do a little editing. But a lot of that had to do with trying to unpack verses one and two. So if you join me, I'm going back to verse one, as Jenny just read, and let's read this together. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Your first point this morning, strive for unity through humility. Strive for unity through humility. Now, you might not see that quite yet, but we're going to get there. Strive for unity. How do we get unified through humility. The first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is Paul is calling the church to be unified. Now, verse 1 is a little bit difficult to interpret. It's a conditional statement, and there are four if clauses. Now, you don't see the word if four times, but there are four if clauses. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in spirit, if any affection and sympathy. Now, verse 1, if we took just verse 1, it would be like listening to half a motif, half a musical motif. So if you read verse 1, it's almost like you're listening to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and everybody wants da-da. But we're not there yet. So you might feel a little bit of tension as we unpack verse one. You're you're waiting for the resolution, but we have to hang on just a second as we unpack verse one, okay? We're in context, by the way. We're still under the arch command of chapter one, verse 27, when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That command, that imperative that he gave in verse 27 of chapter one drives everything that we're doing in chapter two. So keep that in mind. We're still under that command. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And he unpacks that a little bit in verses 27 through 30 of chapter one. We talked about that a few weeks ago, to live a Christ centered life. And then he hits chapter one and in chapter two, and he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any partition in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and you're wondering what's he talking about there? What's he doing? Well, what he's doing is he's laying out four realities of the Christian church. That word, if, you see at the very top of verse one one of chapter two, it can also be translated since or because. So you could read it this way, because there's encouragement in Christ, because there's comfort and love, because there's participation in the spirit, because there's affection and sympathy... See, so he's coming off of chapter one where he's challenging us to be or Christ-like. or Christ And what he's laying out now is realities that we have as a church. If you are a Christian, if you are a church, these realities, these four if statements are true. If you are a church of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is these are true. He's not saying if in the sense of, well, if we kind of have these things. He's saying, no, you have these things. Are you accessing them? You have these things, are they motivating you toward unity? And that's what he's getting at here. So let's just break this apart. We're gonna hit the And then I promise you we'll resolve it. Look look at the first one. So if there's any encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ, the root word of that word encouragement, paraklesis, means to come alongside. It's to lift another spirit, and we have this in Christ. If you are a Christian, if we are a church, we have encouragement because we are in Christ. We are encouraged because of our relationship through Christ. He encourages us. Now, something that's interesting, how does Christ encourage us? us Well, that word encouragement, paraklesis, is very closely, closely related to the word paracletos. Which was used in John fourteen sixteen when Jesus tells his disciples, "I will send a Paracletos, a helper, the Holy Spirit." The Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, is our encouragement. The Paraklesis. We are encouraged in Christ because we have the Holy Spirit. Second reality, we have comfort from love. Now, this has to do with consoling one another, and it's actually related to the idea that we just talked about with encouragement. It's about Christ consoling us through pouring his love into us. Christ consoles us by pouring his love. If you are a part of the church, Christ consoles you by pouring his love. Romans 5, 5 reads like this, and hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have comfort, we have consolation from Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we have participation in the Spirit. Now, participation is the word, we saw this in chapter word. the word "kornania," where we got the word fellowship or the word partnership. We have a partnership with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit partners with us when we become a Christian. The Holy Spirit partners with us as a church of God. He seals us and he guarantees our eternal inheritance. We touched on that last week. He is our help in our weakness, so we have a participation along with the Spirit. We have a relationship, a fellowship with the Spirit. And our last reality, affection and sympathy. The word affection can mean a personal longing and sympathy has to do with mercy. So you see, Christ has a longing for us and is merciful to us. And both of those qualities were displayed on the cross. So Paul's not saying if you have these things in the sense of, well, if this is true. He's saying because you have these things, because you as a believer, because we as a church have these four realities, complete my joy. Because we have these realities, because I'm challenging you to live a life worthy, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's calling us to unity. He's calling the Philippian church to be unified. And by extension, of course, he's calling us as a church here and a church all over the world to be unified. He says, complete my joy. Now, I told you that Philippians, the tone of the book is joy. Joy is all through the book of Philippians. Paul just oozes joy. And it's ironic because I've told you he's suffering. He's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to guards. And yet he says, I am joyful because of my partnership with the Philippian church. He's like, I'm not at Rome the way I would like to be. I'm here as a prisoner instead of a free man, but I am joyful because the gospel's going out. And then we get to this verse two in chapter two, and it's almost like he's saying, I am joyful, but you know what would make it even better? You complete my joy. You know what would make this even more joyful? You complete my joy. How? How do we do that? By being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Be of the same mind. And that word mind, it's the word phreneo in the Greek. I bring it up because we're going to see it again a couple times throughout the passage. It's phreneo. It means to think, to set one's mind Or to develop an attitude based on careful thought. Set your mind, set your freneto, have the same freneto. So, what he's calling us to is he's calling us to think, to set our minds on the same things. He's calling us to be like minded. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to all have the exact same thoughts at the exact same time all the time. That's not even possible. That would be robotic. That would be like an ant colony, you know, whose mantra is protect and feed the queen. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to just be having the exact same thoughts all the time. We're not drones. But we are to be like-minded in the sense that we are to have the same purpose, that purpose being the gospel. We are to be unified. We are to be like-minded around the gospel so he says have the same mind then he says having the same love now this phrase what's interesting is it actually connects back to the reality we saw from verse one any comfort from love this actually same love actually connects to that because we have comfort through Jesus Christ then you take that same love and you practice it among yourselves You have that same love that we get from Christ. You practice that among yourselves. In other words, you comfort or console each other because we have been comforted by Jesus. Have that same love among yourselves. Thirdly, he says, to be in full accord. Now, this is one word in the Greek, and it's only used here in the New Testament, and it literally means to be one-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. Be one-souled, be of one soul, be united, live harmoniously with each other, be united in soul. Finally, he mentions mind again, but it's not not just that he's repeating himself, he says, let me read it again, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What he's saying there, he's not just repeating himself, but that word I told you, that word freneo can also mean taking on an attitude based on careful thought. So what he's saying here is, is be like-minded, be of the same love, be harmonious, and let that drive your attitude. Let that drive your relationship. Let that drive the way you look at each other, the way you connect, the way you, 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 you treat one another. So, our freneto, our like mindedness, our thinking, is going to shape our freneto, our attitude. Now, I love this idea, and I've touched on this before. I love this idea that my thinking is tied to my attitude. How I think is how I am. Pastor Craig Rochelle, uh, he's a pastor in a church in Oklahoma, he wrote a book called Winning the War in Your Mind. And my favorite quote from that book, you can see this on the screen, my favorite quote is this, our life is always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Most of life's battles are won or lost in the mind. Our life is always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. So how I think is how I am. Don't believe me? Watch children around Christmas time. What is driving their attitude? Their thoughts. What's driving their thoughts? Presence. Ask any child around Christmas time, what are you looking forward to on Christmas Day? They're not going to say the family dinner, they're going to say the gifts under the tree. And for weeks beforehand, that's all they can talk about and think about. And all we get is, can we open them now? Our thoughts drive our behavior. Why do you think Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind? You ever wake up grumpy? And then all you can do in the morning while you're trying to get ready is, is think of being grumpy. And then every little thing that happens causes you to think more about that and how you're grumpy and then an hour or two down the down the road you're like why is my attitude poor well your thoughts are poor our thinking drives our behavior so how do we do this we're talking about unity being of the same mind how do we achieve unity how do we become a truly united church We get into the same mind frame, but how do we do that? How do we get into the same mind frame? Look at verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, so the secret to unity, the secret to unity in the church is humility. The secret to us being unified, which is what we're called to do by God's word, is to be humble. It's casting aside selfish ambition. That's the idea that I bring my own agenda to the church. I bring my own agenda to the plate. We can even extend that to I bring my own agenda to the marriage. I bring my own agenda to my kids. I bring my own agenda to the job or X, Y, Z. And that only divides. When we come together as God's people, we come together in humility. And how do we do that? By counting others more significant than ourselves. I heard a pastor say once that the definition of love is you before me. I think that's very appropriate here. How do we work toward unity? By putting others above ourselves. And how do we do that? You before me. You before me. Now, this might make a lot of sense to us today in Western America, but let me give you, let me give you some cultural background because this would have been a bombshell in the first century. Honor, honor was huge in the first century. Life was about getting honor and avoiding shame. Most of, the, of the, the Eastern worlds were honor-shame societies where your job was to get honor, honor for yourself, honor for your family, honor for your tribe, honor for your city. That's what it was about, and however you got honor didn't matter, just get Honor but don't bring shame. It was very, very huge. This drove who people married. This drove the things that they did in their lives. This drove whatever they were driving at to bring honor. Any failure or even being of lowly birth was a shame and was avoided at all costs. One writer writes this, Desire for honor and glory was ubiquitous. Cities struggled to be the first in their province, just as individuals struggled to be the first men of their city to wear the golden crown and purple robe of office. Getting honor for yourself and your family and for your city, that was the major focus of the first century and especially of Roman citizens. And it didn't matter how you got it. Selfish conceit, evil desires, me, 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 mine, mine, mine. So the idea when Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, that was completely foreign to the first century church. Completely foreign to the first century church. What Paul is saying here is absolutely radical. He's saying, be motivated to serve through humility, and it doesn't matter if you get anything out of it or not. If I walked up to an American citizen today and I said, do you think humility is a good quality for a person to have? They'd likely say yes. Probably have some people who'd say no, but they'd likely say yes. That idea was absolutely foreign. Humility was absolutely foreign back then. Now, this word brings me to the definition of humility. This word humility that Paul uses here in the text, it actually stems from another word that means lowly, and it was actually a derisive word, often used of slaves, negative connotation. But the word that Paul uses here is a little bit different. It means lowliness of mind. And it's only used here in the New Testament. It has a positive connotation. It's not quite the opposite of pride, okay? Humility is not quite the opposite of pride, thinking too highly of myself. Some people take that to the opposite. It's like, well, I think need to think too lowly of myself, and I'm wretched, and I'm awful. That's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself rightly. Humility is putting in perspective who I am in relation to God, in relation to others. When I think of myself as better than you, that's pride. When I think of myself as, as just the scum of the earth, well, that's the opposite of pride, but it's not, the, it's not what we're going for. It's not humility. Humility is thinking, I'm a creation of God, I am a son or daughter of the king. Yes. I am broken, and I am no different than my fellow brothers and sisters. That's humility. So he says, count others more significant than yourselves. How do we do that? Kind of think of this passage as we're working down a ladder, okay? He's calling us to unity, being of the same mind. Well, how do we do that? Well, we have to do that through humility. Well, how do we do that? Well, we count others more significant than ourselves. Well, then how do we do that? Let's get very practical then. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The bottom rung here is let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You ever heard the saying, look out for number one? You've heard that. What does that mean? You can say it, it's okay. Yeah, look out for yourself, absolutely. Look out for number one. Look out for me. Put yourself first. You do you. Don't worry about the rest. Paul says, no, no, no. Instead, we should look out for the interest of others. He gets to the bottom of what he's saying here. He says, you have these realities. Remember verse one, you have these realities in Christ. So you be unified in your mindset by living a life of humility, by putting others above yourself through acts of service. That's what he's getting at. By doing acts of service without expecting anything in return, that is humility. That is treating others better than ourselves, which is humility, which is having the same mind, which is exercising the qualities that God has given us. Each of us should serve out of humility. That's the gist of what's going on. And that's how we strive for unity. We strive for unity through humility. Now, I want to point something out. He doesn't say here, neglect yourself. You can see that in the text. He says, says, let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also the interests of others. He's not saying, you know, completely ignore yourself. Don't take care of yourself. That's not what he's saying. Of course, we should take care of ourselves. Eat right. Get some sleep. I didn't last night, but that's okay. Get some sleep. Some of you can identify with that. Some nights are good. Some nights are bad. If you're sick, get some vitamin C. Care for yourself. Absolutely. But care for others too. Care for others too. So here is our application. In what ways are you loving each other out of humility? In what ways are you loving each other without expecting anything in return? We don't want to showcase an agenda. We don't want to build. You know how easy this is? You know how it's so easy. You ever help somebody? And then it makes you feel really good about yourself. And then all you can focus on is the good feeling. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, that is so easy to do. So guilty of that. And it's not bad to feel good. It's not bad to feel good. But when that becomes the focus, rather than helping and loving somebody, that's where we've crossed the line. But love somebody else as Christ loved you. Now, I would say that always starts with our families. And you've heard me say this from the pulpit before, because I'm, I'm all about strong, God-honoring families, and this starts in our families. It starts in how we love our spouses. It starts in how we love our kids. It starts in how we love our parents. It starts in how we love our siblings. It starts there, absolutely, loving each other humbly, not for selfish gain. But I'm gonna challenge you this morning. Let's push beyond our families, okay? You might be looking around you and saying, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in this room. I can't love them all. I can't love them all in the sense of meeting all their needs. No, you can't. If you went out this week and tried to meet everybody's need in the church, you'd be dead by Friday. So let me say this. You'd probably be dead by Tuesday. So let me say this start in your small group. Who's one or two people in your small group that's in need? How can you reach out this week to touch a need from somebody in your small group this week? Now, you might say to me, I'm not in a small group. Well, you've come to the right place. We love small groups. Why do we love small groups? We love small groups because they're discipleship oriented. We want to make disciples. Harvest Decatur exists to make mature disciples who work with, walk, work for, walk with, and how am I saying? Worship. <laughs> work with. Work for, walk with, worship Christ. There we go. I knew I'd get it. That's the reason we exist. That's the reason we exist at a church. And if you're not in a small group, we want you at small group. We want you to grow in your faith. We want you to connect with other believers beyond just Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are great. Sunday mornings are needed. Sunday mornings are essential. But if you want to see growth in your small group, if you want to really connect, get involved in a small group. Get involved in a group of people and you can catch me, you can catch our elders. We'll point you in the right direction on how to do that. All right, let's get back to our point. Our point, strive for unity through humility. Okay, all that was point number one. That was the command to follow. Now here's the example to emulate. Point number two, follow the ultimate example of humility. He's given us a picture of humility. He's even given us very practical things to do to, to, be, to be humble so that we are unified, but he doesn't stop there. Paul gives us the ultimate example of humility. Let's read this passage. I'm gonna read the whole thing, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. You want to know something? I feel completely unworthy to even preach that text. It is just packed full of such deep theological truths about Jesus Christ. And I want to tear into it a little bit, absolutely. But what I what I what I tear into today, take note, is just scratching the surface. And I don't want you to lose the point. The point is, Paul is pointing us to the ultimate example of humility. That's what he's doing here. A lot of Christian, a lot of uh, theologians, rather, believe that verses four, uh, six through ten or six through eleven was a hymn that the early church would sing. I really wish we had that tune, Brandon. We'll figure that out later. What a beautiful depiction. This is is a depiction of Jesus' deity, his incarnation, his death, and his exaltation. It's almost like you're just wrapping the gospel in a few short verses. Deity becomes humanity, becomes a servant, to the point of death, not just any death, but death on a cross. And this is the ultimate example of humility. So let's let's look into this. Verse 5. Verse Five, have this mind. Guess what word that is? That's freneto again. Have this freneto among yourselves. Have this mindset among yourself. Think like this. Have your attitude like this. Verse five can be translated, have, your atti- have this attitude among yourselves. What attitude? The attitude that we've been talking about of humility and the attitude that I'm just about to give you an example. Have this attitude of Jesus Christ. Strive to have this mindset. Verse six, or I'm sorry, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now this speaks to Jesus's deity. Though he was in the form of God, the word was there could be translated existed. Though he existed in the form of God, though his form, his form, his appearance, though he existed in the form of God, Jesus existed in, in the form of God before his incarnation. He was equal with God. He was God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? A number of years ago, I had some Jehovah Witnesses come to my door. And if you know anything about the JWs, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And they'll use this verse to try to say that. They'll say, look, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he wasn't equal with God. That's what they'll say. Now, this verse is actually very unfortunate for their argument, because it's actually saying the opposite. It's saying he is God, he is in the form of God, and though he was like that, what it means he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. What that is actually saying there is that Christ, though he was God, did not take advantage of his godness that 's what it 's saying. The word for grasp here it literally is is like taking the spoils of war, and it, re- it refers to somebody taking advantage of something or someone. With with possessions that they already have. It's, it's the idea of using their, their skills or, or their their gifts to dominate. And it's saying Christ didn't do that. This would be akin to me playing a game of basketball against LeBron James, but he refuses to play up to his potential. That he plays on my level. Now, this is more on a cosmic scale, but you get what I'm saying. If LeBron James decided for whatever reason to play basketball with me and decided, you know what, I'm just going to leave my skills behind I'm going to play on your level, that's kind of what we're talking about. Jesus' incarnation is that though he was in the form of God, he decided not to access his godness, and he kept, came down and became a human. That's what we're talking about here. He could have, by the way, he could have dominated us. He could have exercised his godness. He could have forced us into submission. He could have totally annihilated us, but he didn't do that. He set that aside. He emptied himself, verse seven, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He got down on our level. He didn't become un-God. He refused to access the godness and came down on our level. I, I'm, I'm convinced that we can't fully understand what this is talking about. we get got good pictures, we've got good analogies, we can kind of see, but I think when we get to heaven, these verses will be opened up to us even more. How did God do that? Absolutely no clue. But he chose not to access his godness. Instead, he became a servant. He didn't just become a human, he became a servant. That's the level of humility that Christ Took. Christ became a human but not just a human he became a servant but not just a servant he became a sacrifice that's the level of humility verse 8 and being found in human form He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The level of Christ's humility went from becoming a human to becoming a servant to becoming a sacrifice. God humbled himself to the point of humiliating, excruciating death. And that is our example to follow. I was listening to a sermon by Timothy Keller yesterday. And what he said just blew me away. And it absolutely fits here. He said... He was talking about, he was talking about how, how Christ, he was talking about the, the passage of the, the smallest seed becomes the biggest tree. And he was talking about how Christ is that seed that becomes the tree then that joins heaven and earth. And what he says here is amazing. He says, you know, how small did God get? He said, think about it. You might think in your mind he became a human. Well, he was actually smaller than that. You might think, well, he was a baby. But he was smaller than that. You might think, you know, he was a fetus once. Smaller than that, our God at one time became a single cell. Do I understand that? No. That blows my mind. That's the level that our God got to. And that's the mindset that Paul is challenging us here. He says, you want to see real unity in the church? Sacrifice like Christ did. You want to see relationships in the church fused together like never before? Be like Christ and humble yourself to the point of death. Now you might think, wait a minute, we're supposed to die? We're supposed to die for each other? Okay, now that would be the ultimate sacrifice, I doubt that anyone in this room will actually be called to die for someone else. It's possible. It happens. Probably happened a lot more in the first century. But what he's driving driving at is have that attitude, have that love, have that commitment where we are committed to each other to the point where we would take a bullet for our beloved. Be willing to serve on that level. Be committed to serve on that level. But let's talk practically for a second, okay? What ways do we serve each other on a day-to-day basis? What ways can we love each other and hold each other's interests as much as our own? Really, it's in the realm of self-denial. The ways that we serve each other on a day-to-day basis, not the extreme ways, although we might be called to do that, but the ways that we serve on a day-to-day basis is a lot of it's just self-denial. It's just choices. It's... Instead of lounging on my couch, I see that my neighbor's in need. I'm going to go help them. It's, you know what? I have an opportunity to hang with the guys tonight, but my wife really needs me home. And you can come up with your own examples. Those are the day-to-day things. Those are the day-to-day choices that we make where we're, we're looking to others' interests as much as our own. But let me ask this question. When did you last sacrifice to the point that it hurt. That's the way Paul's calling us to live here. Christ sacrificed not to the point that it hurt, but to the point that it cost him his life. Why? Why did he do that? We could talk about a lot of reasons why he was obedient to the Father, he loved us and wanted a relationship with us. We could talk about all kinds of reasons, but there's another reason that Paul points out here in the text. Look at verse 9. Therefore, why did Jesus do this? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did Christ sacrifice? For many reasons, but the one that's given here is that he sacrificed on earth for a heavenly reward. He sacrificed himself on earth for a heavenly reward. He did not remain in a state of humility. When you and I get to heaven, we're not going to see humble Jesus. We're going to see King Jesus. If we can even bear to look at him, we're going to see King Jesus and we're going to worship at the throne. He sacrificed on earth for a heavenly reward. He was obedient to the Father for a heavenly reward. And it says that the father has given him a name, a name that is above every other name. Uh, He's given him status, in other words. God has given him status that is above every other status. Now, names, you might know this, were very important in the Bible. Names were often given because of some kind of significant event surrounding a child's birth. Maybe you've read that in the Old Testament, that so-and-so was called this because this was happening. Or God blessed this person, so he called his son this. You've seen that a lot in the Bible. Let me give you an example. God changed Abram's name to Abraham because Abraham was going to become a father of many nations. And Abraham means father of multitude. Names are very important, but Christ's name is above every name. He's given the name of ultimate authority. His title is king of of kings and lord of lords, but his name has been given to him by God, a name that surpasses all other names and has authority to dominate all. What is this name? Is it the name Jesus? Not exactly sure. Revelation 19:12 tells us that he has a name no one knows. That could be the name that is referred to here, but it could be the name Jesus because Paul comes back to Jesus because he says every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Either way, Jesus has a name and that name is power. Now the phrase in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that's simply a reference to all of creation, all sentient beings, all humans, all angels, all demons, all will bow the knee and call him Lord. All will bow the knee and call him Lord. You cannot escape from that. You will either call him Lord now, or you will call him Lord at the end of time. This is not a passage that's teaching universal salvation, okay? This is not a passage that's teaching everyone's going to be saved. That's not what it's teaching. What it's saying is eventually everyone will bow, everyone will confess, and you'll either do it here on earth while there's still time for salvation, or you will do it at the end of time when it's too late. But everyone will bow the knee, and everyone will call him Lord. So let me ask you this Have you called him Lord? Don't wait. Because at the, end of the time, at the end of time, it's too late. Repentance is available now, but it will not be available at the end of time. When God comes back, when he sets up his kingdom, when he defeats his enemies once and for all, and he judges all of humanity, it's too late then. You will call him Lord, so why not do it today? And if you need help with that, catch one of the elders, catch me. We would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. What a mighty passage. But don't forget, it's so easy. This is one of those passages where it's so easy to get lost in the details. We forget the point. Don't forget the point. God God is calling us to be humble like Christ. That's the point of the passage. Now, our motivation to serve the Lord should be out of love. Let's talk about motivation for a second. Our motivation to serve the Lord should be out of love. To have the opportunity to love the Lord and be loved by him is all the motivation we should ever need to live the life he's called us to live. But he's so good that he promises that those who serve him will receive heavenly rewards like he did. We talked a little bit about that last week. You have a new, incorruptible body waiting for you if you are in Christ. And the rewards don't stop there. Eternal life, bliss, sinless, joy, relational harmony like we have never known, all of that is waiting for us. Serving Christ here on earth, though it's hard, though it demands sacrifice, though it's painful, heavenly reward is coming. Just like your Savior was rewarded, you will be rewarded. Not to his level. We don't deserve that. Any level of reward we don't deserve. And yet he promises it to us. So much undeserved reward. And yet, that should give hope. That should encourage you to strive for unity through humility. We as elders, we've been praying diligently for unity in our church. Can I just say, it's been a crazy season. Been a crazy season. And the last thing that we as elders want is that Pastor Tony's leaving create division in our church. We've been praying hard for unity. And this is exactly what the passage is calling us to do. But how do I get to this level of humility? How do I get to this level of unity? How do, I, how do I develop humility to the level of Christ for unity in the church? I can't do that. You know what? You're right. You can't do that. And I can't do that either. It takes a God to stoop to this level of humility. So what do I say? I say that's why the gospel is essential. essential. I say the gospel is essential for spiritual growth to get to this level of unity. So embrace the gospel, church. We just read about it in verses five through 11. Embrace the gospel. Christ left his throne, humbled himself to the level of a human, a servant, a sacrifice. And the more you take that in, the more you fill your heart and mind with the truths of the gospel, the more you'll be like him. And that's how we become a truly unified church. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you're so good. Reading about this passage, reading about what you did, it is humbling. And it should drive us to our knees because we need you, Jesus. We need you like never before. Touch our hearts. Touch our minds. Drive that gospel message deeper and deeper in our souls so that we can live a life worthy, a life of unity, humility, striving to love each other, as you love us. We praise you, Jesus. We give you thanks for it's in your great and awesome and mighty name.